Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to stories of discipleship and putting Scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of just fewer than 1,000 churches throughout Kansas and Nebraska. I'm also a certified lay minister in the United Methodist Church, so what you hear on this show truly comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 25 years' experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teenagers to 90-somethings, and I served as a journalist for 20 years prior to entering ministry. So I'm excited to share with you stories of disciples in action and to explore with you what the Bible has to teach us in the 21st century. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes feature interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. Still others include short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. It's no secret to anyone in the United Methodist Church that we are in a season of unrest. Indeed, the disaffiliations taking place across the United States have captured a lot of attention in secular media. And this podcast recently featured a four-episode series on the history of our dispute, the state of the church now, the challenges that come with disaffiliation, and finally, some insight from Bishop Ruben Sines Jr. of the Great Plains Conference. This season in the life of the UMC begs the question, who exactly is welcome? Is the push for greater inclusion of LGBTQIA persons taking hold? Recent elections for Bishop would seem to indicate that to be true. Looking just at the South Central jurisdiction, of which the Great Plains Conference is a part, one of the key outcomes of Bishop elections was the concept of representation. Bishop D. Williamston of the Great Plains was elected by nearly 90% of the delegates and is the first African-American woman elected in the jurisdiction. She'll begin serving in Louisiana January 1st. Bishop David Wilson of the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference was elected as the first Native American bishop in the history of the entire denomination. He'll begin serving in the Great Plains Conference January 1st. Both new bishops have talked openly about the importance of their elections and how their elections represent, well, representation, a space at the table. I had the opportunity earlier in November to attend an event with that name, Space at the Table, Conversations of Hope for the UMC Future. It was the second of two such gatherings, one in the southeastern jurisdiction in Atlanta last summer and the one I attended recently at Lover's Lane United Methodist Church in Dallas. While both gatherings clearly had a goal of looking forward as United Methodists and how we can serve Christ and our mission fields together by welcoming LGBTQIA persons, the discussions were much, much broader than that important topic alone. In fact, I would say it's the first time I've been at a non-training kind of event where people talked openly about full inclusion regardless of sexual preference or identity, spoke of placing young adults in leadership roles, pondering the important role of the episcopacy in our new world, and, I'm happy to say, real discussions. And I mean real discussions about tearing down barriers we've tended to erect regarding race and how critical it is that we not push that topic to the back burner. To set the tone for this episode of In Layman's Terms, I want to share a story relayed by Reverend Dr. Stan Copeland. He's senior pastor at Lover's Lane UMC and he was the host for the Dallas event. I asked him to tell the story of the first full-time pastor of Lover's Lane UMC. I think it's a powerful tale about what I think is God's view for inclusion in the UMC or in any church for that matter. Here's Stan Copeland. 
Tom Ship was the uh, basically the first pastor here, first full-time pastor. Uh, he came here when he was uh, 27 years old from Highland Park, where he was an associate. The house, the church was meeting in a house. Uh, but Tom Ship's story is quite amazing. He was uh, basically an orphan. His mother died um, when he was five years old, um, and he had three siblings. And uh, his father moved back to southern Missouri, where he, Tom's grandmother lived, because she had to help with the kids. He worked for the railroad. And when uh, Tom's grandmother Lizzie died, they were basically orphans. And so the father made sure that they had homes, uh, basically with farming families in, in uh, southern Missouri. And, uh, and, and Tom uh, went to a family, I think he was 15 years old when he went to this family. And uh, he recounted that he did his chores, which was his role, and uh, went to the house for supper. Um, and when he went into the, the kitchen, there were, there were four chairs at the table. And the father of the family said, boy, you don't eat in the house with the rest of us. Uh, we'll bring your food when we're finished and you eat at the little table on the porch and you'll sleep in the barn. So that was his room and board arrangements that he would, uh, he would eat by himself on the porch and sleep by himself in the barn. And it gets cold in Missouri. I did my seminary experience up there. Um, so Tom said after about a year or so of that that he asked his dad if he could make other arrangements. And so his dad spoke to another farming family. The father of the family's name was Les Coons. And, um, and, and Les um, uh, really had a similar farm situation as did the other family. Uh, but Tom said the first day he did his chores, he washed at the well, and he went into the house, uh, and there was a, was a place for him at the table. And so he sat and he ate with the family, just like one of the kids. And he said there was a, a, there was a bed for me in the house. And so he said that it meant so much to him to, uh, to be welcomed by that family. And he said they took me to town, what Les did, and said they bought me my first new pair of overalls and first, uh, you know, new shirts, new, new socks, new shoes. A everything was new and he'd never had anything new in his life. Um, and then he said, but the best part was on Sunday, they took me to their church, a little Methodist church. Um, and it was one of these little churches where the altar rail went around the, uh, the center pulpit and the Lord's table. And he said he'd never taken communion. And so he was, um, he just knelt down at the altar rail as did Les and his family. And Les was on his left side. And he said, and then the man where he used to work knelt beside him on his right side. And so he was watching as uh, the pastor was taking the elements, the, the, the bread and the wine, little cups, little crackers. And uh, he said he reached his hand to receive the, 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 the bread and the man on his right side grabbed his hand and wouldn't let him receive communion. And so um, at that time, Les Coons leaned over and he said, it's not your table. But the man wouldn't let him go. And Les said again, it's not your table. And then Tom said, um, the man still wouldn't let him go. And Les said in a voice loud enough for the whole church to hear, it's not your table. And he said, 
he released his grip and Tom said, I received communion for the very first time. And he said that um, that experience meant so much to me that I knew my place was in the church. And, um, uh, and, and you know, I believe that when Tom became the pastor here, he welcomed alcoholics, which was very unusual in the 40s. Uh, in fact, in 1968, it was said that this church, which was the fourth largest in the connection at the time, had 350 alcoholic families. And um, I, I believe that Tom had ringing in his ear all throughout his ministry. It's not your table, it's the Lord's table. And at this table, all are welcome. I've heard that story three times now and I get goosebumps each time. What a powerful message. It's not your table. And I think that's a good thing for all of us to remember because we tend to exclude people from our tables sometimes unconsciously, and other times with intent. I would argue that in our abundance, we tend to shelter our resources. We seem more focused on building taller, longer, stronger walls, instead of inviting people in who are in need. Some people would argue that that's true of our nation's borders, but I also think that it's true metaphorically in our communities. I know many people in this dispute within the United Methodist Church will say those remaining UMC have it all wrong that all people are welcome, whether this be an independent church or a global Methodist church or wherever you choose to go. And that very well may be the intention. I mean, who am I to say otherwise? But I can tell you what I've heard from people in the LGBTQIA community, from people of color, and from people with few economic resources. They tell me that regardless of what's being said, what they're hearing from actions of people are you're not welcome here. That's the reality. My hope is that the people who feel excluded will hear that this table, at least in the United Methodist Church, indeed has a place for them, that there is a space at the table. In this episode of In Layman's Terms, I'm going to give you a taste of what was discussed at Space at the Table in Dallas. You'll hear excerpts from the keynote speech from Reverend Dr. Mike Slaughter. He's a well-known pastor from Ginghamsburg Church in Ohio and an author of some amazing Bible studies. And you'll hear some short stand-up interviews I conducted with a few folks before, during, and after the one-day event. So let's get started. Here again is Reverend Dr. Stan Copeland sharing how this event came to be and what the hopes were for it. The idea came about uh, over a year ago. Uh, my colleague and friend from Atlanta, uh, Peachtree Road United Methodist Church, Bill Britt, and I got to talking about how we needed a time where we could just talk about these matters and have presentations that would stimulate conversation. And, um, and so we had the first one in Atlanta in the, at the end of August. And uh, then the plan was to have this one right after the jurisdictional conferences, which I think that was a, a good time because everybody is excited about uh, elections really throughout the, uh, the U.S. Uh, in all of the, uh, the jurisdictions, and we in the South Central jurisdiction are extremely excited. And in that jurisdictional conference in the South Central, mm -hmm. the, the aura was just so different this time around than it was in 2016, in my opinion anyway. So I've only been to two, uh, but it was just a much more um, upbeat, uh, uh, I think the elections, of course, with one, all everybody elected on one ballot was amazing. People were really excited about that, and it really shifted the focus, I think, to where do we go from here instead of relinquishing in this liminal time? 
I think you're exactly right. I've, I've been to, I think, five jurisdictional conferences as a delegate, and uh, uh, that was the most uplifting, uh, hope-filled, forward-moving conference I'd ever been a part of. Um, and I think the election of the bishops on the first ballot was just the, the really the clue that for three years we've been looking forward to that conference, nearly three years. And we had interviewed the bishops, and they're probably the three most vetted bishops ever elected. And every conference was on the same page. And so when we voted, uh, it was a surprise. Nobody thought we'd elect three on the first ballot, but it was historical. But more than that, it was so, uh, I don't spirit-filled that, that uh, you could have that kind of unity. And I think the resolutions that were passed made a lot of sense, had a lot of support. Uh, you know, all the votes we took were just pretty much uh, 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 consensus to some degree. So A lot of people move in the same direction for a change. Uh, that's right, that's right. And I think that's what we will see um, in the new United Methodist Church with our regionalization and with, uh, with, with uh, General Conference, uh, really being focused on the things that we want to do together that greatly impact the world. Uh, so I'm very, very excited about the United Methodist Church. You had 300 people registered for this, more than 300 people. A lot of them showed up. <laughs> pretty, full, pretty full building today. Um, what were your hopes coming into it, and then how do you feel now that it's wrapped up? Yeah, I mean, our hopes coming into it that was we'd have a good crowd, but quite frankly, we didn't anticipate this many people responding. So as we saw that uh, the registrations building and building and building, we, we started uh, getting clear that our focus, uh, 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 you know, was touching a, a chord, if you will, and that people really needed it, wanted it, and... Uh, and we were just excited to be able to host it. And we did have over 300 people here from, I think, every jurisdiction was represented. I talked to a woman yesterday from, uh, from the Northeast and, uh, and also one from uh, the Western jurisdiction who were at Perkins for, the, uh, for their, their convocation 2022. So, uh, you know, we had a, a wide swath, but we did also stream. There were, uh, you know, a lot of people streaming and now they'll be posted. So, you know, thousands of people will view uh, these different uh, panels and presentations that were made. So we're real excited about the extension of what went on here into churches, local churches, small groups, Sunday school classes, uh, where I think we're getting out good, positive, hope-filled information. The keynote was provided by Reverend Dr. Mike Slaughter. He was pastor at Ginghamsburg Church in Ohio. It was a church with fewer than 90 people in attendance when he arrived there, and by the time he retired, it was one of the largest churches in the entire denomination. Slaughter provided the kind of keynote that makes you ponder deeply. It could have been a rah-rah kind of speech, a cheerleader kind of approach, but instead he went cerebral on the attendees, the 300 or so in person and even more online, and he asked them to ponder what was God's next for those of us in the UMC. He started his talk by pointing out the opportunity we have because of the disruption in the UMC and because of COVID. Here's Mike Slaughter. Now, COVID, and this schism that we are experiencing right now has given us an opportunity to reimagine God's next. And disruptions throughout church history has been such an opportunity 
for God to get our attention to come together to reimagine where the Holy Spirit is moving now. Now, when we look, you know, all schisms are based on our source of authority. What is our a source of authority? The first major schism in the church was 1054 when the East broke from the West. Now, Rome claimed authority and tradition, and the East claimed orthodoxy. And so this was the first, that's pretty good, going 1,054 years as one basic church body. Now, 500 years later, what the Reformation brought us back to was a renewed awareness of the primacy of Holy Scripture as the authority for faith and practice. But through the five centuries since that time, there has been major disagreement on how to interpret that's resulted in many more schisms. Once you protest, you never cease protesting. So in 2000, this comes out of the, the study of global Christianity, there were over 34,000 denominations now think in five, five years. And now 22 years later, it's approaching 45,000 different denominations. And it's all over, we, we all claim the authority of Scripture, but we don't agree on what the Scripture says. Now, just in our Wesleyan ranks, we have the Wesleyan Church. All, all these came out of different schisms. The Wesleyan Church, the United Methodist Church, the Church of the Nazarene, Free Methodist, African Methodist Episcopal, African Methodist Episcopal, Episcopal Zion, Salvation Army, Congregational Methodist Church, Evangelical Methodist Church, Bible Missionary Church, Variant Holiness and Pentecostal Branches, now another, GMC, and various independent networks that are coming uh, out of the denomination. Yet all, all would claim the same scriptures as the validation of true faith and practice. You get the point. We all claim to be students of scripture, and we all claim to be correct. And thanks to that attempt to hold on to authority, church schisms, unfortunately, are nothing new, not even in the Methodist movement. Slaughter continued with the idea of how changes have come about in the church by looking at our Catholic brothers and sisters. Now, um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to spend time in Assisi. I, I really, uh, the, the Catholic reformers, well, one, Ignatius of Loyola had a conversion six years after Martin Luther, but was committed to stay in the Catholic Church to create renewal. And he even named his movement uh, Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, you know, getting back to the true uh, source of authority. But uh, Francis of Assisi, he, he passed in 1226, came up with this whole new understanding. And he challenged the church's doctrine on substitutionary atonement. Now, substitutionary atonement was the orthodox position at the time and is still for much of Christianity. And here's what he said. Jesus didn't die, have to die, to change God's mind about humanity. But Jesus 
uh, died to change humanity's mind about God. Isn't that amazing that that kind of grabbed me and that's the place that I'm in right now? Uh, he, he believed this all-powerful God doesn't need the death to forgive or love. Hesed is a Hebrew term. Unfailing love. Love that will never let us go. Neither height nor depth or any, other, or any you can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now, you can imagine how radical this was, 1226, in this new kind of movement within the Catholic Church. So here it goes. People were calling the Pope, Pope Innocent III, to excommunicate him uh, from the fellowship. But what's so amazing is that the Pope, Innocent III, made the judgment that Francis... um, view wasn't heresy but a minority position and Francis theology was able to remain in the fold of Catholicism they saw that as a minority view and that's why in the Catholic Church you have Jesuits Franciscans and so forth and they have a lot of disagreement in their theology but they they believe that we are born of one spirit that holds us in unity together So here's a question I want to ask, and I I want us to think about. What do we mean in the affirmation of the primacy of Scripture as the authority of faith and practice? And what is absolutely essential, and what is open for disagreement or change? So what exactly is essential? It's a question theologians have asked for a really long time. Even John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, addressed the topic in a famous quote. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. There are two critical insights we have in in Scripture. Uh, The one is what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John 5. He said, you all search the Scriptures thinking you have life in them. But they point to me who's life. See, somehow we have become more Baptist in our theology, and the Trinity has become the Trinity has become God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Isn't that right? I mean, what I'm here, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, what does Jesus say through the continuing voice of the Holy Spirit? You know. Jesus was not, he didn't say, I'm going to leave you a book. (laughs) Well, we do have that damn discipline. (laughs) Um, See, our, our Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters are people of a book. And we're people of the Spirit. Right? That's, so the Bible is not the destination. It points to the way. Now I'm going to say something really freaky, but Jesus is not the destination. He's the way. 
Are you getting this? Gee, I start wrestling with all, and the, and the United Methodist churches where we're allowed to wrestle. You know, it's, here's what I say the, the United Methodist Church is about. Our, our stance is Jesus and everything else is a conversation. Think about that for just a moment. Our stance is Jesus and everything else is a conversation. I had to chew on that statement a bit, but after a while it really hit me. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if Jesus is the Word of God, not the Bible, as I was taught growing up in the Baptist Church, that it makes sense that Jesus is teaching in life. More importantly, our actions to live the kind of life that Jesus taught should be a source of unity. That leaves quite a bit of room for discussion about the things Jesus isn't recorded to have talked about. Here's Mike Slaughter talking more about that subject. Our stance is Jesus and everything else is a conversation. Now, where do we find our authority? Jesus said, John 16, again, when Jesus left... He said, I'm going to send you a counselor. This is a living presence. I'm going to send you a counselor who will be with you and in you. He will remind you of the things I said, but he will lead you in things to come. That's that living presence right now of the divine with us that's living us, leading us in community that we came to the point where you said, yes, women can lead in the church. But what does the Bible say? You know, we said that LBGTQ folks are children of God. And everybody has a place at the table. How? Because the Spirit is revealing things to come. So we come back again to the both and. Scripture, enlightened by the ongoing living presence of the Holy Spirit, worked out in the trust and accountability of community. We come back to that place. So why do I believe in this new opportunity, this new reimagining, not going back and trying to be the same United Methodist Church uh, or so forth, is to realize our unity is based on one absolute. Jesus is Lord. And everything else is a conversation. Jesus is Lord and everything else is a conversation. And here's what we believe. Jesus, our Lord and Master, prayed that we all be one. We don't need another schism. Like many other people, I lament that others have chosen to leave. Now, I respect their decision, but that doesn't make it easy to see them go. But I am one of the majority who will remain, proudly I might add, in the United Methodist Church. In many ways, I became an adult in the church. I've learned far more about the justice that Jesus taught from pastors in the UMC than I ever did growing up as a Baptist. I appreciate the connectional nature of the church, the strong points of Wesleyan theology, John Wesley's understanding of grace, and what it means to strive for perfection in this life. Mike Slaughter shared why he has chosen to stay in the UMC. Now I want to tell you why I'm in this United Methodist Church, because it's for me, it's grown me. Um, I'm understanding what it, Wesley talked about, sanctifi uh, sanctification going forward in perfect love. I'm getting there, I'm not, not there yet. 1992, uh, General uh, Conference Delegate, 
Louisville. Um, I was in the legislative session, uh, social concerns, and you know, at, at that time, I was a young evangelical in, in those years, and I was totally against abortion on all counts. It's more complex than that these days. You heard about a 10-year-old girl that uh, was raped and had to go to Indiana and Ohio, you know, to get an abortion. And uh, so here I am. Texas is a seasoned, well-known person. I'm not a well-known person. And so I'm fighting him in legislation session. He looks, he looks at me and said, where'd you come from, young, whip, young whippersnapper? Is. So we would fight in the legislative session by day and go uh, drink a beer, I mean a Coke, um, <laughs> t- together at night. And, and we would share our Jesus stories. You know, and here's what I always thought about progressives. You believe in Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus too, Tex would say. But he said, it's more of a mystery for me now than it is for you. Well, I'm at that point now where it's more a mystery for me than it was. So I won legislative session. This thing became so big, he and I were written up in New York Times and stuff. But I lost the main floor by 19 votes. I lost the fight, but I did not lose a brother. Now, what I learned through the years of Texas friendship in my life is in question. I love questions. I have grown through these conversations, seeing the fruit of the Spirit in other people's lives. I couldn't do that anywhere else. I could not be a part of any movement that excluded any human being. This is the community that has formed me and allowed me to have questions, to change, to be different, to grow, that people wouldn't let me go if I was different from their position. We stand on one thing. Jesus is Lord. And everything else is a conversation. What a time to reimagine what God's next is for our United Methodist Church. Amen, brother. What's next likely includes shifts in our annual conferences to younger clergy taking on leadership positions in all aspects of the church. The Space at the Table event featured several forums, and one of them included a panel of young clergy sharing their experiences. What we heard were tremendous stories of growing ministries, information about obstacles these young clergy face, and concerns about ministry and family life. It's basically kind of a passing of the mantle in my view. Not that we discount our older, more experienced clergy, but there's a reality that the new UMC will need some fresh ideas to connect to the communities around our church buildings. Put simply, we have to try new things. One metaphor for the session came from John 21, where the disciples, frustrated from a night of poor fishing, are told by Jesus to cast their nets on the right side of the boat to try something different, something new, something maybe a little unconventional. One of the presenters was Reverend Brian Phelps, who serves a church in DeSoto, Texas. We'll let him take it from there. 
I'm joined now by uh, Reverend Bryant Phelps, and he is with Church of the Disciple UMC in DeSoto, Texas. Uh, Bryant, you took part just now in a, uh, a group of young clergy uh, talking about the future of the church, and you said something that just really uh, touched my heart. We were talking about uh, the scripture where Jesus says, uh, cast your net on the right side of the boat, when they hadn't caught anything on the left. And you said something about the boat itself. I'm asking you to repeat that for our listeners. Yeah, so thank you for having me, Todd. I'm excited about being here and excited about the future of the church. Uh, but we've been spending a lot of time talking about, you know, the disciples and uh, this particular text about Jesus after the resurrection telling the disciples, hey, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Uh, you've been fishing on the left all day, called nothing. And I asked the question, when do we ever consider the boat? And so we talk about these things and talk about the disciples, even before this experience where they're on boats, there's a tempest on the sea. Uh, you see Paul on his way to Rome and his ship breaks apart. Uh, but we never and we very rarely talk about the condition of the boat. And I wondered if the net were enough. Do we have an opportunity now to reshape and rebuild or build a brand new boat for brand new fish? So what, do you, what do you say about that with the United Methodist Church's future, mm -hmm. what's going on now, mm -hmm. as a person who's relatively young in your ministry, mm -hmm. what does that look like for you as, as a United Methodist? Because uh, you said you didn't start out in the United mm -hmm. Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. Tell us, start with that. Let's share sure, with sure, that Sure, first. sure, sure, sure. So I grew up in the Baptist Church, uh, the National Baptist Convention of America. Uh, and when I got to college, a uh, good family friend of ours was a bishop and uh, had been asking and telling me to consider ministry in the United Methodist Church. And it took me all of college to say, sure. Uh, and so I did that and I loved it. And I have been blessed and enriched the more uh, simply by being here. And what made me, uh, what sealed the deal for me rather, was really this idea of curiosity, that there was a depth of curiosity that I knew I couldn't really get away with in a Baptist church. Otherwise the deacons would put me out. Um, <laughs> But uh, this, this idea of curiosity and being able to do something with my imagination, um, and I, I love that and I have taken that with me, especially because during my undergraduate career, I was working on a degree in marketing. And so here we are uh, at this critical juxtaposition in the life of the church uh, where we we have to do something different with what we've got. Uh, we have an opportunity to rebrand. We have an opportunity to rebuild. We have an opportunity to really uh, lean into the expanse of our imaginations. And I think that this is a holy moment in which God has invited us. God's grace has beckoned us into this moment uh, to really think creatively and outside of the box. We can, we, and we should carve out space for grief, no doubt. We should carve out space for acceptance that these things have happened, that our our church has changed, and I wished, I totally wished, uh, that those who are leaving us um, would have given us the opportunity to think broadly and deeply, even the more, to come up with something inclusive, expansive, uh, something robust, something holy, because this is holy work. And I'm just excited about what we're able and going to be able to do, not just because a disaffiliation has happened, but because God's Spirit is at work. And that means maybe a bigger boat. Maybe a bigger boat. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Another way to consider a bigger boat is to ensure everyone feels comfortable at the table. One group that definitely has not been made to feel welcome is many people in the African-American community. It's shocking that less than 4% of United Methodists are black. 
and that's down considerably from the merger with the Evangelical United Brethren and Methodist churches in 1968. Why do we struggle so much with race? That's one question being asked by people working within a tremendous movement known as Strengthening the Black Church. Here's my short conversation with one of their representatives, Reverend Dr. Michael Bowie. I'm here with Reverend Dr. Uh, Michael Bowie uh, with Strengthening the Black Church. And, and I think what was interesting to me is, is the way you drew parallels to what the United Methodist Church is going through now with the things that African Americans dealt with uh, related to to our denomination and the church in general. Would you mind sharing a synopsis of that with folks here just so they get a feel for what you're talking about? And then we'll get into a little bit more about the importance of not being just one issue based here. Well, I think Todd, uh, we, we've been talking about space at the table. So I did a quick broad overview from 1787, which was the year Richard Allen was pulled out of St. George's Cathedral in uh, Philadelphia. Um, there was no space at the table. And then there was uh, 17, uh, 18, 1884, when they had uh, bishops who owned slaves, and they said it was, um, some said it was evil, unconstitutional, but they still prohibited that. So it was another split, but we were still seen as uh, product and not people, no space at the table. Then 1939, we came around, and it was an amicable understanding that they may be people, but we're going to put them in a separate jurisdiction, central jurisdiction. So it was no space at the table. So this table, but it's a different room. Right, different room, yeah. So it was almost equivalent to having black water fountain, white water fountains in the church. Not in the world, but in the church. I, I kind of talked about that in a nutshell. And so I think what I want people to understand and where I really attack, where I really connected with your mm -hmm. talk was how it's so important for us to, to not just think about LGBTQI+, right. plus, because that's important. I don't want to get past that. But it's so important for us to remember we have not solved an issue of, of race right. between white, black, or anybody else. You know, you are a smart guy. You picked up on that. And I didn't say that, but I guess you heard me say it. I, I think, Todd, because I, I love everybody, and I think it's kind of, if you were for lack of a better word, a slap in the face to people who stayed when they weren't, they didn't want, when they weren't welcome in, mm -hmm. and we've jumped over the issue of racism, and now it's LGBTQ. And the sad thing about it, my fear is that the LGBTQ issue is gonna take over or become the new um, grappling thing for racism. And I think if we really dealt with the elephant in the room of racism, I believe LGBTQ, I'm not gonna say it would fix itself, but it would be more palatable to, to talk about. People, people who maybe are against full inclusion, if they were able to get past race, yeah. it, it helps them break down that barrier yes. that keeps, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and people say, well, it's the same. I don't compare the two, but what I do compare is all issues of uh, social justice. Yeah. For anybody to be excluded is not of God, and to see it happening in the church, is, it's an embarrassment, and it's almost um, a slap in the face of Jesus saying that Jesus didn't um, die, die on that cross long enough for us. He didn't hang long enough. Right. What gives you some hope that we might get past issues related to race? Uh, in, in, your, in your role, I mean, you're, you're working so hard with churches that are historically black yeah. or, or by virtue of gentrification, right. things have been segregated, and frankly, we've self-segregated sometimes. Correct, right? yeah. Um, but you're working really hard to help bridge that gap. I mean, people yeah. see strengthening the black church and they think, oh, he's just working with black right. people. That's not necessarily the case. Exactly, yeah, and, and you hit it on the head. I think right now, 
and, and I use these words, I'm not a cliche guy, but I'm a practical theologian, so I use uh, strong one-liners. And I said it, you know, when you strengthen the black church, the United Methodist Church is stronger. So if we're all united for everybody to be strengthened, it makes us a, a strong move, strong movement. So I, I think right now, um, when we say strengthen the black church, we are really, we can't do this by ourselves. I think Bishop said it best. We are 4% of mm-hmm. the denomination. That means we need uh, committed allies. So, so we're looking for people to come alongside uh, those who are driven by justice and unconditional love to say, you know what, not only uh, does this LGBTQ issue matter, but the black church matters. And, and, and this is not black lives matter, but we're saying indeed the black church matters because a lot of great things has happened through the black church. I think we forget they've forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's that's what I really, uh, I guess if you say an agenda, I was I'm pushing. But I want I see black is more than race, but it's a culture. Mm-hmm. It's an ethos of love rooted in justice. And I think any person, white, brown, polka dot, can be a part of the black church movement. Excellent. Thank you so much for spending time with me here. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate you. Thank you. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, this day was filled with fruitful conversations and thought-provoking presentations. The final panel of the day involved three bishops. Bishop Reuben Sines, Jr. of the Great Plains and Central Texas Conferences, Bishop David Wilson, who will serve in the Great Plains as of January 1st, and Bishop Cynthia Fierro Harvey of the Louisiana Conference. The three bishops shared information about the disaffiliation process and answered questions from the crowd. You can learn more and watch this and other panels and all the other speakers by going to the Lovers Lane UMC website at https colon backslash backslash llumc.org slash space. But to conclude this episode, I want to let you hear from those three bishops. I spoke to each of them at the conclusion of the Space at the Table activities. We'll start with Bishop Harvey. I'm joined here with Bishop uh, Cynthia Fierro Harvey, and she was one of a bishop's panel with Bishop Sines and Bishop Wilson talking about uh, the future of the church through the eyes of the episcopacy. And Bishop, I wanted you to tell folks what you said a little bit about uh, this as being an opportunity. With all the things that have gone on, we can look at this as a challenge or we can look at it as an opportunity to do something new. Tell folks a little bit about what that looks like. No, I, I do think it's an opportunity to do something new. Um, it's not a problem to be solved. We don't have actually solutions to some of these things. So actually looking for where the opportunity to do something new. Uh, is there a way to look at the church in a new way? Is there a way to look at how how we do church? Is Church planting is probably going to be very different for our future, but it's going to have to happen to fill some of these voids where we've left United Methodist deserts after disaffiliation. So, you know, I don't want to rehearse what we've done for the last 50 years. And I want to care for our people, and I want us to move forward in a way that's faithful to who we say we are, faithful to our call, and as bishops, faithful to our consecration to maintain the unity of the church. And so I, I think that I just see that this is like it's a new day and new mercies I see. You know, it's like is there an opportunity right this moment today to do a new thing that – you know, I have a friend who says that God's middle name is surprise. And so is that is it that moment where even God will surprise us in these times? Not that we haven't had successes, but the reality is we haven't been super successful over the last 50 years anyway. So in a lot of ways, this is a chance to say, you know what, we can just completely start over and do something totally new. Uh, does that excite you as a bishop? And, and how so? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm a futurist. That's my number one strength finder. So looking to the future and doing new things. And I do think that, that while we've done some things that maybe we're not proud of for the last 50 years, some things that didn't work, what did we learn? And how do we leverage what we've learned in order to move us into the future? And I think that will be really important. I don't want to abandon everything that we've done because there's some things that we've done that are really, really excellent. So how do we leverage our learnings, leverage our experiences as we move forward? You're getting ready to move to a new location, uh, the Texas conference. Um, what is that? I mean, people don't think about that for a bishop. We're going to talk to our bishop about that too, but but the idea you're moving to a new place, even though you were from there originally, what is that, in this time in the church, what does that look like for you as far as just the idea of starting over somewhere new? Right, well, and it's been about 12 years since I've been in the Texas Conference, so there are people that don't know who I am and I don't know who they are. So that, that in itself, and it's also daunting, this is a you know, not a very easy time of the year uh, to be moving uh, in itself. But I, I do think there's some things that we can, um, you know, for me, going back to my home conference, uh, boundaries are going to be really important. And, and, and then reestablishing some of those relationships that will actually be helpful to us for the future. And you get to look at things from a new light as a new person, and that's actually maybe a strength uh, at this time in the history of the church. I mean, I left and I was Cynthia Harvey, you know, Cynthia Fierro Harvey, and I'm coming back with 10 years of experience in the Episcopacy. Uh, I hope that I can bring some of that with me of what I've learned. And, and some of those things um, that I've learned, I will do and some I won't do. Uh, that's just what you do when, if you really discern uh, the learnings. Well, Bishop, thank you so much for your service and thanks for being here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And now here's some remarks from Bishop David Wilson, who will be the new Episcopal leader in the Great Plains Conference, effective January 1st. And as we've wrapped up the space of the table, I'm here with Bishop David Wilson, our new Episcopal leader in the Great Plains Conference uh, as of January 1st. Uh, Bishop Wilson, just tell me a little bit about what your impressions were of today. This has been an amazing day to see the diversity of people who come together for this common cause and say, how do we uh, talk about uh, the mandate for everybody to be at the table from Christ? And so it's, been, it's wonderful to hear that all the, all the panels were good, but I was really enthralled by the young adult panel. They gave such great uh, testimony, uh, witness, and even instruction for people like myself for how we live into the future as Episcopal leaders. What were some of the things that they talked about that really grabbed your attention? Well, I, I think I think one one was one was the young woman talked about the entrepreneurial spirit of how we need to look at uh, the makeup of our congregations. That often there are people who do all kinds of, who have all kinds of skills, uh, day jobs that would work perfect in leading a church as a pastor and or in other ways, and that was pretty impressive. And the other piece was just talking about how we pay attention to the. Personal, personal needs of our clergy, our hurts, our wounds, and I know that's impossible to do uh, for one person in a size, in a conference the size of Great Plains, but the need for superintendents, clergy, all of us to be able to pay attention to the small details of people's lives, especially in the midst of all that we deal with. Someone made a comment about uh, our cups are running dry, and so we need to continue to look at how do we replenish those cups how do we provide opportunities for clergy of all ages uh, so we can take care of them uh, so they can continue to live out their fruitfulness? 
You've talked in the past uh, throughout the election process and everything about this about representation, yeah. uh, literally a space at the table. Yeah. Um, that fits really well with what's what was talked about here today. Can you talk a little bit about those parallels between your background, Native peoples, and, and what we were talking about here today at Lovers Lane United Methodist Church? Yeah, you know, it, it, it was I pre it, it was it was um, different and unusual to be here representing. Uh, uh, you know, the, be, being a bishop uh, uh, and being indigenous. Uh, and that's the first time in the history of this church that we've had that. So that's a brand new thing for me and for everybody to think about how do I fit into this uh, structure that's been around for years and years and years after that. But I always share, Todd, some of the pieces about uh, the understanding of our uh, culture, the importance of community, of relationship, and how we build our ministries around knowing that we're in community, that what we do is for everybody, not for one person. And we all work, we're all, we all work in this together. The relationship of lay and clergy, which is so important for us, same way it is for Native culture, relationship of all, of all humanity. When we do something, it's not for one individual, one group of people, it's for everybody. And that's a perfect, perfect image of having a space at the table that fits in so well with indigenous thought that when we do anything, it's for everybody. It benefits all, all of God's people. And that's always been a, that's always been a uh, challenging for indigenous people to say, why don't other people do it like we do? Well, and you actually alluded to that in one of the answers that you gave during the panel um, when there was talk about what it, about the disaffiliations. Uh, you talked about it in the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference. There hadn't been any mm -hmm. because of the understanding of the importance of community. Help, let's educate people a little bit about that as a, in terms of indigenous people and maybe why that's a little different. Maybe a model the rest of us should maybe follow. Oh, sure. You know, we talk about um, this. You know, we talk about, although we have 39 tribes represented Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas, which is our Indian Missionary Conference, very diverse, but yet folk who, who, who love the collective nature of what we do together as indigenous peoples. We, we all have different cultures and languages, but our common goal is to uh, serve Christ, serve the community, uh, you know, to be a light into the world. And so when we've had those conversations, people say, we just want to make sure we stay together. And, and so we understand what it means to live with uh, diverse groups of people tribally, how we live our lives uh, uh, in, in the life of the church in terms of acceptance and, and our folk who really don't look at uh, what it means to be, I mean, we understand it's inclusive piece, but I tell people too, Todd, we, we look at, we don't really have people to say, he's conservative, she's uh, moderate, she's uh, 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 progressive. Progressive, or, thank yeah. you. And we never ask those questions because we just all work together and then we just try to do our best to work for the common good. You know, that may change for the future because when it does change, it's because we're depending upon this European model of how people live their lives. Uh, all of these trades go back years and years to our tribal uh, uh, nations. And it's only been since we've accepted Christianity has that been diluted because of what the church has taught us to say, here's what it means to be a Christian. And so, so when, we, when we're able to delve back into our tribal cultures, our theology, our concept of how we get together, it really makes sense and more sense to us. And that could be, I mean, if the church looked at how Native people live, I'm not saying we're perfect, but in terms of how we understand our, 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 our connection and our, the importance of relationship and community, that, that lends to the church very well. 
you mentioned uh, from the uh, from the dais up there, you're excited about the Great Plains. Yeah. You've talked about that before, but uh, we'll just give you a couple of seconds here to say hello to everybody because it'll be January 1st before you actually start. <laughs> but this is going to air long before then. So yes, I'm so excited about coming to the Great Plains. I mean, I get to visit folk every week on the phone, via text, email, following uh, the conference, what they're doing uh, online and via social media, and so looking so looking forward to being there. Uh, I was list. I saw a post by uh, Ashley Prescott. Uh, uh, Ashley Prescott Barlow Thompson. We we all call her Ashley PBT. <laughs> Ashley PBT. Uh, I think it's the right Ashley. She was at a at an event uh, with. Uh, Young folk who are interested in ministry. This oh, she was at residency. residency. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. And I watched. I saw that post, and saw that wonderful group of people. I said, "How exciting!" And I said, "I look forward to getting to meet those folks and visit with them and talk about the hopes for the future." Looking at that, taught in itself, saying, uh, "You know, there's great things ahead for the Great Plains Annual Conference. Not because I'm there, but because of what folks are doing already." And I'm so looking forward to jumping on board and getting in there and just learning and getting, getting to meet folk and help help us continue to make a difference for folk in the Great Plains Conference. We look forward to having you January 1st. Thank you. Look forward to being there. Thank you. Indeed, we do look forward to Bishop Wilson starting here in the Great Plains Conference on January 1st. But for right now, Bishop Reuben Sines Jr. is still the Episcopal leader of Kansas and Nebraska. And I want to give him an opportunity to share his reflections from Space at the Table in Dallas. Uh, Bishop, tell us a little bit about uh, what you were taking part of here today and what your thoughts were based on what you got to see and hear at the Space at the Table event. Stan Copeland, the pastor at Lover's Lane, invited me to be part of a panelist uh, panel discussion a couple months ago. And so he knew that I was going to be in the area, and so I accepted, and, and, uh, and now I get to be his bishop. And so um, what, I, what I saw was, you know, some 30,000-foot questions about about speculative stuff that could or should happen with the church, which which is exciting, right? We start imagining what the future could look like. Um, but I think the energy was good. It was good to see the attendance that was here, the pastors that are here, that that are ready to move forward with the denomination. You know, after a hard season of COVID and then disaffiliation, so I think this is a forward-looking conference, and uh, and and this is uh, the yeast that'll help raise the ministry levels for years to come. We got to see a lot of things today. Uh, Mike Slaughter gave a great talk. There are a bunch of young clergy that uh, shared with us some of their hopes and dreams. Um, and then just the table discussions, you were here for part of that too. Plus you got to meet a lot of people. Um, one of those unfortunate things, they know you, you don't know them yet. Right. <laughs> um, what were some of your takeaways uh, from today? People were asking the right questions. People are, were excited about sitting at a table where they can have a conversation about things that are on their heart without worry about, uh, about it not being a safe space. And so I think that's a step in the right direction. We have to, we have to talk about the hard things because as, as people of faith, we are engaging in the world in a very different time. And so how can we do that with grace with compassion with understanding and with uh, with a sense of of want to be a part of what God is doing in the world the question is uh, God's already at work in the world are we going to catch up to what God is already doing 
Do you walk away from something like this energized about what's going on in the church? I do. There's a, there's a Disney movie called Encanto. And have you seen it? I've seen it great. It's one of the best soundtracks ever. Well, the thing is that there's this crazy uncle that lives in between the walls of the house, right? And the family tries to keep up sham and pretense. But nobody wants to talk about Bruno. So there's a whole song about we don't talk about Bruno, right? And I think that the church doesn't talk about the Brunos that are hidden in the walls that are part of the family. Everybody knows they're there, but nobody wants to talk about them, right? Wh whatever it is. And, uh, but I think that we do need to affirm uh, the people that are living in hiding in the walls, uh, in, in the shadows of society, and even the shadows of the church. And as Bishop Willimon said, that the one that started all this problem was Jesus. Bishop Sines is referencing a video that was shared during the conference featuring retired Bishop Will Williman. Absolutely hilarious, but packed with truth. I invite you to watch the video at the website for Lover's Lane. That's again, uh, https colon backslash backslash llumc.org slash space. Let's go back to Bishop Sines. And, uh, you know, and, and the thing is that we don't have options to decide who is in and who is out. That is, Jesus has already invited them. So how do we need to change our thinking so that people, there's space at the table for everyone? Will Willimon had a great quote in there, if I remember. It's, yeah. I may have it not quite right, but something along the lines of Jesus taught him over the years that he's, Jesus is the Messiah and he is not. He is and not that means exactly. none of the rest of us are either. No, we're not. We're not. And uh, Cardinal John Dearden was a prayer. Is, is a, he wrote a prayer that I love to use over and over again. And he said, we are ministers, not messiahs. We're prophets of a future, not our own, right? And so he talks about, let's get over ourselves. We're not that. And Jesus invites and the sinner and breaks bread with whoever Jesus wants to. And it's not for us to agree or not agree. That's Jesus. And we follow him. Then I guess by implication is we must be the same. We must be Christ-like. That's, that, that's the goal, anyway. Is right? that the goal? Well, that's a hard goal sometimes. For some, some goals are harder than others, right? Right. So, awesome, Bishop Science. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Todd. Thanks for being here. I know you you came from uh, the Great Plains and you spent the night here and you've been all day at this conference. Appreciate all you do. Jesus is Lord, the rest is conversation. It's not your table. Strengthen the black church and you strengthen the United Methodist Church. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat, or better yet, consider a new boat altogether. All of those were such great points of discussion from the Space at the Table event at Lover's Lane United Methodist Church in Dallas. Again, you can watch all of the plenary time worship and panel discussions at https colon backslash backslash llumc.org slash space. Now I admit that we didn't get into half of what was discussed at Space at the Table in this episode. There just isn't enough time. So I urge you to take some time to watch the panel discussions, especially the one involving the young clergy and a group of academic leaders that I'll admit I didn't even get a chance to talk to or any of them for this podcast. I got to tell you, I left Dallas feeling really good about things, really good, especially about the future of the United Methodist Church. My hope is that those of us who will be staying UMC can work together in unity 
to forge a bright future showing love to God, proclaiming Christ, serving others, especially the poor, and seeking justice. I think that's the vision Jesus had for his church, for all of us. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps others find us. And if you're so inclined, please share the link to this podcast on your social media channels. Our music and sound effects come via subscriptions to Universal Production Music and to Storyblocks. You can find archived episodes on the conference website at www.greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts or on my website, toddseifert.com. Please email me with any questions or comments to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.